invite you uh, to open uh, your bulletin to page 12 as we'll begin uh, reading God's Word in a few minutes. Uh, we've been working through the book of Thessalonians the last couple of weeks, um, delivered by uh, James Grant. And James, we're uh, grateful for your willingness to do this, a book that uh, he knows well and a book that we've benefited uh, from studying together. So James, come. Look forward to hearing God's Word from you. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The text is also in the bulletin. It is a delight to be back with you. This is now um, our fifth message on Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. This section in Paul's epistle is about the second coming of Christ. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. And be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, Encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now at this time as we seek to understand your word and ask that you will send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds. We pray that your spirit would give us encouragement. We pray that your spirit would give us faith and love. And as we look at this passage, we pray that your spirit would cultivate in us hope. We know that it's not possible that this happens on our own. So we would ask that your spirit accomplish these things for us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was amazed um, as we heard the, the beautiful offertory anthem of the line, um, I've heard, I don't know how many times I've heard his eyes on the sparrow. 
And it happened to be this morning that the line, when songs give place to sighing, when hope within me dies, jumped out at me. I, I don't, I guess it's the Holy Spirit when that happens. Not sure exactly why those different lines in, in hymns and, and songs jump out at different times, but our text this morning is about hope. And this, the, his eyes on the sparrow reflects on both hope and the opposite of hope, which, which is discouragement as it starts off, why should I feel discouraged? But deeper than, than discouragement, it's fear. I'm convinced in the garden when Adam and Eve first sinned, that fear was the root emotion, that fear was the driving dynamic that brought about their doubt, that brought about their unbelief. It was fear that God didn't have their best interest in mind. And so when you feel discouraged, when the shadows come, when your heart's lonely, what's happening in that moment is fear. I would like for you to pause and think for a moment as we, as we look at this passage about hope, what is it that you struggle with? What is it that you fear? We try not to let our minds go too far down that road. Sometimes it, it's a sin, but, but if it's a past sin, the fear about the past sin is always, what's it going to do to my future? Most all of your fears are connected to a fear of the future. Will God be there for me? Will he protect me? Will he be there for my family? Even his eyes on the sparrow, as you read back through it, the discouragement and the loneliness, that's all about, is this going to change or is this going to be my future? And so in our passage this morning, Paul is expressing one of the fundamental aspects of the faith in order to address your fear. The scriptures do this in different ways. John does it in 1 John by highlighting love when he says perfect love casts out fear. And Paul will do that on occasions. But as you noticed in in our passage this morning, this is now the second time Paul is brought together in chapter 5 verse 8, that threefold virtue of faith, love, and hope. And in our particular passage, it is that aspect of hope that Paul is highlighting. Because we have to have some kind of confidence in the future. If you lose hope, if you lose some kind of hope for the future, it will create problems in the way you live your life, It will create problems with your love for other people. It will create all kinds of waves in your life of unbelief. And so Paul, in addressing these Christians we've seen, highlights for them in chapter one how how the church was planted, how God was powerfully at work when the church was planted. And then Paul moves into that area of faith and love when he starts describing his ministry in chapter two and his love for them and sending Timothy and then the outgrowth of that faith and love in chapter, the beginning of chapter four, when you live a life pleasing to God. And now he has very clearly turned from the past and the establishment of the church and the ministry that was there and the present to how you live a life pleasing to God to how do you deal with your fear right now 
as you face the future. And the Christian faith is a faith that gives you confidence in the future. It is one of the fundamental aspects of our belief system is that our God created history and time. And this is going somewhere. There's a purpose. And even though we as individuals may face any number of difficult and fearful moments, we are part of a bigger story called the kingdom of God. And so Paul wants to highlight that future in this passage. And so we're going to highlight several points. And and I've decided, well, I have a certain number of Sundays to get through this book, so I didn't just decide. But I have decided to take chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11 as one group. And that group, there's there's a great deal of benefit to looking at the whole passage in one sweep. We could break it down and look at all the images and the different things. My goodness, we could have a a conference on Bible prophecy and everybody from Church Road would come and show up thinking that they're going to learn something about the future if we did that because those are exciting things that people do. But we're going to focus on not times and seasons, as Paul says in chapter 5, but hope. And how the second coming of Christ provides hope for your life. So number one, the second coming of Christ will happen. It's an obvious first point to us. But if you were living in Thessalonica and Paul just got run out of town and you're not sure what the future holds and all this stuff about Jesus is new and you're just learning about it because Paul's telling you and you're a new Christian, you don't really understand this thing. And so Paul starts out in verse 13, I do not want you to be uninformed. He does not want them to be uninformed about the future. The future has a destiny and a goal. Paul does not want them to be confused or fearful. God is in control of history and he's taking it to a specific goal. And we do not want to take that point for granted. We live confessing we believe he'll return again. But that's not a widespread belief in our culture necessarily. Some people have no hope for the future, no sense of a purpose in life. Some people actually believe history is cyclical and it just repeats itself without a destination. But the Christian faith, Paul specifically addresses the issue that Christ will come again and wrap this whole thing up. The specific area that Paul is addressing that, that leads us to the hope, the issue of hope, is those who have fallen asleep in verse 13. Those who have died. All of this is part of God's plan. So that brings us to the second point. The second coming of Christ gives hope. It provides hope for the future. When Paul says he does not want them to be uninformed, he does not want them to be uninformed about those who are dead. And he says that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. When we put ourselves in the shoes of the first century Christians living only 20 years removed from the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, perhaps we are confused about what's coming next. Perhaps we doubt what's going to happen. Or in some cases, perhaps they think Jesus will come back very quickly which seems to be an obvious thought by some of them. And then what happens 
when somebody dies. I remember, I think it was 1988, uh, I was in middle school and I think that NASA scientists uh, wrote a book about 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. And I remember as a young child, a, a teenager, uh, an early teen, standing on a hill by our school in recess, standing by two or three friends and we're looking up at the sky and we're going, you know, today was the day that scientists said that Jesus would come back. And we all go to the same church together and, well, do you think we'll make it to the end of school? today. (laughs) And so in history, every time something like that happens, it's astounding to me with the cults and other stuff that happens. They predict the time that Jesus is going to come back and it passes. And then the people connected to it are, some of them are like, well, well, that means that it's not true at all. And that's not the point. That's why Paul says, don't go guessing about the times and seasons in chapter five. Paul does not want them to grieve as others who have no hope. Paul's saying two things in that statement that's important. First, he's saying that it is right. It is okay for Christians to grieve. I had to learn that lesson um, in the course of my life when my dad died I was reading some books by Mike Horton about faith and hope and grief. And I had kind of gotten sucked into that notion that, you know, because you're a Christian, because you believe in the resurrection, because you believe in these things, you're supposed to approach suffering a certain way and death a certain way. And for me at the time, it was like, pretend like it doesn't hurt. Pretend like it's not painful. The kind of stoic reform notion that when you hurt yourself, you're like, well, that's what God intended. I'm glad I've got that over with. When in fact, life is painful. And the scriptures don't hide that truth. This side of the fall, life is very painful. And you go through stages where you go through suffering and trials in your life, and it's okay to grieve. And it's okay to admit that it's painful. And we should not approach funerals in a way where we pretend that it's all a celebration and it's not deeply painful because the death of that person is not the way it was supposed to be. So Paul says, it's okay to grieve. But when you grieve, the second part of that statement is, you do not grieve as others who have no hope. In the midst of your grief, in the midst of the pain that you acknowledge, you have hope. And the ground of that hope for Paul is that Jesus died and rose again in verse 14. The death and resurrection of Jesus, which brings us to our next point. The second coming of Christ brings clarity about what's going to take place. It provides clarity in several ways. It provides clarity in the fact that we just pointed out you do not ignore the grief. That's, that's the opposite of what was taking place in that culture. Paul, when he says, do not grieve as others who have no hope, he actually is trying to help Christians navigate through the fact that that culture had no hope for anyone after death. One of their philosophers said, hope is for the living, not the dead. 
There is no hope there. And Paul is going to turn that on its head. The Christian hope that we have is grounded in Christ's death and resurrection. Notice how he puts that here. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's a hope there in the death and resurrection. Now look how he, he makes these parallel. If I could put them side by side, Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's a connection between Jesus' death and resurrection and a Christian's death and eventual resurrection. Because Jesus rose from the dead, it's a promise that you will rise from the dead one day. That you don't have to fear death. Now we do, we struggle with it because there's a lot of unknown. But the core answer of the gospel deals with our biggest problem. Churches can go about life and create programs and plans and all kinds of stuff in the course of ministry and never address the core problem. The reason why you're here as a church is to prepare people for death. That's a stark reality. But that's what the gospel's doing. And that's why the gospel describes the Christian life as a series of deaths and resurrections when you pick up your cross and follow Jesus. If there's anything that we're trying to do in the study of the word of God and, and, the, and worship and all the things we do as a church is to prepare us to have faith at that moment. When, when we do all the other moments and we face those moments step by step in our life, yes, we're trying to encourage perseverance and growth through the course of your life. But that whole journey is leading to the time when you face God. And Paul's goal here is to give them confidence to not throw away their faith right now, but to have hope so they can press on to the end. The Christian hope is not only founded upon Christ's death and resurrection, but the Christian hope is also founded on Christ's presence. Paul says, verse 15, for we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That word coming in um, verse 15, where Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until his coming. That word coming is the Greek word parousia. Coming means presence. We who are alive, who have, uh, he says, uh, we who are alive, who are left until the presence of the Lord. Now that's a very important point because the hope for Christians is not only bound in the death and resurrection of Jesus that he accomplished in the past, but it's also connected to his coming, which means his presence. So in this journey now, you journey through life and there are moments where you feel his presence and you, and, you, and you sense it, 
Some worship services do that. Sometimes through the course of a week, the Lord does an unusual providential turn and you sense his presence. But you don't always sense his presence. Christians in the history of the church have actually described a stage of spiritual growth called the dark night of the soul. We just don't sense his presence very much. I'm not sure what stage you're in in the course of your life, but we all go through moments where we just are not aware of Christ as much as we were at other times. At those moments, Paul reminds us here that when he comes, the point of his coming is you receive his presence. Your faith becomes sight and you embrace him. That's the goal. So his presence for us when he comes. And then this notion of the second coming, it describes some of the events, but it provides the the description of these events, the clarity of these events. Paul is trying to provide comfort. The second coming provides comfort. Notice he says it in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This aspect of comfort is so important for for the description Paul gives here. As we face death and we face someone's death, Paul does not want us to be uninformed about the death of loved ones. His words are meant to strengthen our faith and provide hope, and hope becomes the basis of this encouragement. Sometimes we forget how influenced we are by the gospel. Sure, we all struggle with our faith, with obedience and assurance, but we have been so influenced by the gospel that we forget that we live with a constant sense of hope. The pagans in Paul's time had no way to comfort each other in the face of death because they had no hope. No way to provide comfort. There was a complete sense of hopelessness in that first century. I mentioned a moment ago, one of the philosophers said, hopes are for the living, the dead have no hope. There's another letter written uh, in the second century by an Egyptian lady named Irene to a grieving couple as they face the death of their son. After explaining they have done everything they can in those circumstances, she concludes her letter this way, but nevertheless, Against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. Against such things, one can do nothing. That's, that's the pagan hope. Comfort one another. Because you can't do anything else. Paul says, comfort one another because you have a hope for the future. You have a hope for the future. I, I was, this passage um, was very helpful to me. I mentioned a moment ago when my father died because before then, I, I kind of looked, I had gotten away from the study of the second coming. I kind of, I thought at the time, I nailed down what my millennial position was and I had all the arguments for this or that and I had rejected my old uh, past about what I viewed the second coming. And then, I had to go through death of a very close person to me, my dad. And it was during that time um, that the resurrection became fundamental to my notion of hope. 
And I discovered in preaching through this passage and looking at this, that Paul highlights that the hope we have as people who are alive is the same hope that those who have died actually have. That was astounding to me. I'll say that again and highlight it. Those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, those who are dead, have a similar hope. Drop down to chapter 5 for just a moment, verse 10. When Paul talks about this salvation that we will eventually obtain, he says, Jesus Christ who died for us, so whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Think about this. The hope for Christians who are dead, as Paul says, who are asleep in Christ, who are waiting for Christ to return, the hope for them is this return of Christ. They're not going to live perpetual existences of a disembodied spirit state. When Jesus returns, those who are dead will be raised and reunited with their bodies. And those who are alive will be caught up with them together. The hope of Christ's coming is true for those who are alive and those who are dead. The gospel hope is still something they long for. The book of Revelation even provides descriptions of saints gathered around the throne crying out to God, when will you make all things right? So this notion of hope is true for us as it is for them. As we move into chapter five, the second coming of Christ also requires diligence. Chapter five, verses one through seven, Paul's point here, which is ironic that the most of church history has gone against this point. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, don't get caught up with times and seasons. It's going to surprise you. You're not going to have it figured out. Paul gives two images here in these uh, verses of how we need to live our life with diligence. The first image is the sudden labor pains of a pregnant woman, Paul says. The day of the Lord, the coming of Christ will be like that. People will say, verse three, peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. There is not a way to predict that second coming. And then the second image Paul gives is the second coming will come like a thief in the night. We are children of the light, so live according to the light. Don't fall into the darkness because you have to be diligent for the coming of Christ. Not only that, but the second advent of Christ, the second coming of the Christ brings salvation. Verses 8 through 10. Paul says... For, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. There he uses the image of faith, love, and hope to describe the course of our life, saying to these Christians, look, you've put on the breastplate of faith and love as you live your life. You've put on the helmet of the hope of salvation as you look towards the future. And here's your confidence, verse 9, for God has not destined us to wrath. If you're a believer, God has not destined you to wrath on that day. God has provided hope and salvation. 
Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That future, if you're a believer, is not a future of wrath. It's a future of salvation, Paul says. You have not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 10, the verse I jumped to a moment ago, who died for us so that whether we are awake, alive right now, or whether we are asleep, we might live in him. We might have that common hope. And then he ends it with this notion of encouragement. Finally, the study of the second coming of Christ should build in us faith and encouragement. Paul uses the same word here um, for encourage that he used in verse 18 when he says, um, when he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. Twice, he uses that word encourage. So in this context, the primary purpose that Paul outlines the second coming of Christ in this section in his letter is to encourage you. I tried to do that with a manifold different images and points that Paul's highlighting in the course of this. But let me close with one of my favorite stories from uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Silver Chair in the Chronicles of Narnia. The Silver Chair is not one of those books that stands out on that list But in the course of telling the story of two children named Jill and Eustace, along with a funny little character named Puddleglum, they go through this great adventure to find the prince. And C.S. Lewis is so good at highlighting this sense of hope. He does it in the silver chair and he does it at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia. When they find Prince Rillian, they discover he's being held captive in the underworld by a wicked witch. And they release him and he kills the giant serpent. That must have been an accident. Lewis used the image of a serpent. <laughs> then Prince Rillian leads them through a series of tunnels in an attempt to reach the outside world and hopefully make it back to Narnia. And I'll never forget reading this. And as they're traveling, they face the constant threat of death. And the children are afraid. And at one point, Prince Rillian says this as they're fighting this off because you're reading this and you're thinking, they may not make it through this. And Prince Rillian says, courage, friends, whether we live or whether we die, Aslan will be our good Lord. And I thought, my goodness, can I say that? Whether I live or whether I face death, Jesus is my good Lord. Can we say that when we face not only life and the joys of it, but death? That if the story doesn't go the way we wanted it to, that Jesus is still our good Lord. That is why Paul gives us these words. So that whether you live or whether you die, whatever it is that you face, you can confess that Jesus is a good Lord. May that be our prayer of hope this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we come to the conclusion of our message 
in this section of Paul's writings, and we've reflected upon the future that can be very fearful for us, we pray that you will encourage our hearts and build us up through these words. As we talk about death and the struggle that we all have with that reality, we are thankful that you have given us Jesus and the gospel. And even though we don't know the future, we know him. And we pray that as we live our lives, that we would live in such a way to acknowledge that he indeed is a good Lord. Father, send your spirit to help us with our struggles and to strengthen our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.